Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. We are here, and we are about to embark into a journey, into a discussion and breakdown of the latest episode of Star Trek Picard, Season 1, Episode 8, titled Broken Pieces. Hello, David. How are you? How's it going, everyone? Feeling good. All right, so we bounced back after the last episode, and it just pains me still. You <laughs> know, and, and we're not going to get into that again. Oh, yes. I was, you know, we're very. I was very upset, but um, you know what? This episode was much stronger, clever, well written, well acted. Many of the issues I was starting to have, not the issues of last episode, but overall, <laughs> many of those elements are coming together. And they found creative ways to to kind of move the plot forward. And that made me very, very happy, especially because we have two episodes left. Come on, you have to move these pieces forward. Otherwise, you're going to have a bunch of fans raging. Yeah, you have to give us answers now at this point in the series because you can't just get another episode where, oh, let's add this mystery and what's going on here. You have to start answering your plots. Yep, your plot. Yeah. All right. So this episode really pushed the narrative forward. It was also the very episode, David, that we needed to bring everything together. Uh, And I'm not just talking about the story, but our characters. We now have a crew that is connected by one bigger story. It's great character motivation, a single rallying call of sorts that brings all of our characters together under one umbrella, which was Uh, desperately needed we didn't need a a show with a bunch of random characters with their own agendas in a show called star trek picard when you title a show in such a singular way you really don't have room to create all these random strands of character stories that aren't interconnected in a big way and we find out that guess what everyone's story ties right back in so that was a big win for me when it comes to this episode. Yeah. We also learn about the Zot Vash. We had a brief flashback at the beginning, which is the template for this series. So it's something that uh, I have gotten used to. Uh, but thankfully, we learned about them by way of our characters, mostly. It wasn't just an entire 25-minute monologue flashback scene telling us their plans. No, we had Raffi investigate, which I thought was brilliant because that's what you do. You make our characters figure things out, and then we figure things out. And it worked for the choice of character, too, because, like, I like the fact that Raffi's the one who's the investigator because that's the one thing that seems to be part of her characteristic is the one that constantly is asking questions. Yeah, you're right. From the very moment we saw her, we see that she's a down-and-out character that's struggling slightly with, with a mild drug abuse and alcoholism because she believes in this conspiracy that other people don't believe in so so it makes sense that someone that has dedicated a large portion of her life to investigating this conspiracy is the one that also starts to see uh the pieces fall together and then it unravels so i like that agnes also might actually be a bit redeemed i know that's something and we had said, listen, there's no coming back for this woman. There's no way she killed Bruce Maddox. But as you know, we we learned as we moved along in this episode, we learned 
some things that shed light on the intense reaction to the possibility of total universal annihilation. That flashback helped us to understand a little bit more about what Agnes saw. I mean, by the way, now that we know this is not the future, but a warning, it doesn't necessarily conflict with discovery any longer. No, it doesn't. And that's that's one of the things that I was really worried about. Yep. Was is it how is it, it how is this going to affect the other shows in the new Star Trek? Well, Dave, we had so many questions in our last episode. We're like, okay, this doesn't make sense. If if exactly. the AI in Discovery season two was intent on annihilating all humankind or all life, I should say, all organic life. I mean, so we have this problem again. Is it going to be connected? Did Burnham's mother not see this see happening this in happening? Discovery? So now that we know that it's not the future, but a warning, you know, that instilled fear into these individuals, that actually works a lot better for me. Yes. And plus, Star Trek isn't, no matter how much I love the supernatural and the mystics, you know, or the mysticism, especially in science fiction, Star Trek, that's not Star Trek. You have to always tie your mysticism back to science in some way. You have to. It's, yes. it's this isn't Star Wars, and that honestly, that's what I'm waiting for is to for them to tie in the mysticism with science now of the Tal Shiar, which I'm sure we're we're getting there. Yeah, because we already know now exactly how this uh, this group of individuals is not fast formed and why. And we're going to get into that. We're going to break all of that down in a minute here. And Seven of Nine rejoins the collective, and it has many people shouting out the new Borg Queen on social media. Is this a thing, Dave? Is this something that we're going to see now? Is she the new Borg Queen, or are people just getting way too giddy? I think people are getting way too giddy and too ahead of this because it's not like she joined the collective. Well, she did join the collective, but... It was only, but it was like... She had control? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like when what does you that see say Borg, about her character, though, man, says a lot, honestly. dude, and it brings up a lot of questions. How awesome is that? I mean, what a way to show how fucking strong she is. She's so she's so adamantly against the violation, right? At this yes. point that there's a form of temptation, I'm sure. To, to be of one mind. I mean, that's something we've seen in Star Trek Voyager, that there was that temptation of not being alone. And what do we see her? And how do we see her in this episode? Someone who's broken and alone. She lost her son. She lost her lover. She felt betrayed by everyone, including the Federation. She's alone. The very thing she was afraid of in Star Trek Voyager because she was she was raised being a part of one mind. And when you take that away, the security of never being alone, that was part of her development. And now having that temptation to be connected and not being alone but then she resists it yeah i mean dude that's some that's some awesomeness right there jonathan franks basically put it best when he said there's certain moments when you just look at jerry ryan and you say there's seven there's the seven we know there's moments when i look at seven and nine and i'm just like it's it's really (laughs) feeling strange right now I, i i feel my pants tightening yeah but that moment when she um, disengages herself from the cube, from the connections in the in the yeah in the room, that is when I basically go, okay, that's seven. That's the person that we all know from Voyager, who we all as Star Trek fans saw grow and get this individuality that she has earned, earned by the end of Voyager, that. She can resist that temptation of giving in to the collective. Yeah. That was like, a, that's like the moment that Frank says is like, oh, there she is. That's seven. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk a lot about her as well later in the show. All of this and more. We've got a lot to sort through for this week. And uh, David, why don't you get us started? Give me your overall initial thoughts on the episode. Overall initial thoughts of the episode is it is much better than the last uh, last week's episode. Much, much better. Um, I like the fact that they answered a lot of things. I'm going to say this, however. Okay. However, some of the, some of the with 
thing, the the writing choices that were done in this episode makes a lot of the writing problems that me and you have discussed about throughout the entire series. Yeah. It just is very, it, it brings it more into spotlight, I, you know? Yeah, dude, like, I, I, I hate I, you sometimes. Why do you gotta, why do you gotta bring us down? I'm not gonna try to bring you down. No, but, but you're valid. You should be voicing your thoughts. I'm not telling you not to, but because yeah. you're not wrong. Because I'm sorry, some of the choices in the episode, they're great. This, this episode had some great moments. This episode was a good story. The yes. story was good. But there's still writing problems. Still writing problems. In terms of the craft, the mm-hmm. craft of writing, there, there are some issues. Absolutely. There's some issues. Yeah. I mean, you you can't you can't deny that there is this sense of laziness still in this episode when it comes to the writing. Yeah, it almost feels like it wasn't laziness. It feels at times that they just decided in editing to cut a scene out, and yes. and then they just say, "That's all right. No one will notice. No we, one we will don't. Notice. We don't need to explain that." Even though the next episode, people know things about certain people, and you're like, "Wait a second. When did you figure this out? Because when did you figure this out? How did you get here?" Yeah, I know. It's, it's simple I agree. questions. I agree, Dave. And that's I think that ultimately, looking back at this series. It's the simple questions that basically kill the series. And honestly, Dave, I've never seen problems like this in any Star Trek series where they completely just tell us something and we're just like, wait a second. You're when did we find this out? Eat it. <laughs> yeah. So, And we'll talk about that towards the end. I have that actually in my notes for my final thoughts because I, I don't want the our episode discussion to be weighed down by those moments yeah. because – there aren't a lot of them in this episode. Overall, this episode was pretty fucking stellar. It so. was it was pretty stellar, and like the performances of all the characters, I was really happy with. Dude, I mean that's the highlight, right? Yeah, I mean Rios, Picard, Seven, Raffi, Agnes. Holy shit, dude! All I mean, of it was really every, powerfully done. It felt Shakespearean. I, I felt like I was at the theater. Like I'm not talking the movie theater. I'm talking about the theater, Broadway. Like these performances were just so fucking passionate. And powerful. So, I mean, what a great team of actors, right? Oh, yeah. You, this, this is one of those episodes that you take a look and you say, okay, there's a reason why they put this cast together. Dude, I'm telling you, Shaban was giggling the entire time he was writing these lines because he's like, dude, he was like, fuck, this is going to be so good to see on screen. <laughs> this is the ty- type of stuff writers want to write. These are the types of scenes actors want to act in. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, so let's get started. This synopsis, Picard realizes how far some will go to protect secrets that go back generations when truths about the attack on Mars are revealed. Nerissa, who's my wife, orders her guards <laughs> to capture Elnor, setting off a chain reaction on the Borg cube. This episode was directed by Maha Vervio and written by Michael Shaban, the man himself. All right. Let's start with this conversation between Soji and Picard, which was absolutely wonderful. And there was some genius embedded in this conversation because when we circle back by the end of the episode, there's a line that Soji says that has a greater impact and a greater meaning and possibly connects mysterious aspects the lore of Picard in a way that probably none of us really saw coming Soji is connected to data deeper than we know yes we see that Soji knows things about Jaina for example never met her at least as far as she remembers but she knows her name the moment they mention her sister and the whole world that she's heading towards her planet She doesn't remember it, but she knows things about it as if, again, she's an AI. It's programmed into her. There's things that she knows that she shouldn't know. For example, the French fries and the ice cream thing. And then let's circle back. After she listens to Picard talk about data. What does she say? She says definitively. In the exact same manner that she knew Jana's name. And she liked French fries and ice cream and how she knew things about her home planet. She says definitively after hearing Picard's story that Data loved him. It was no different. 
the way she said it, it wasn't just her being empathetic, saying, oh, yeah, you know what? I can tell he loved you. They're trying to show us that she actually knows things that they are deeply, deeply, deeply. Is that a word, David? Deeply. <laughs> what, what the <laughs> fuck? Deeply. Deeply. If they are connected in a, a more, more deeper way to uh, data. That is a smart way to subtly show, especially when you take an episode like last week where at the right moment, she tilts her head and you're just like, yeah, real subtle, subtle guys, that, real subtle. subtle, real subtle, because this was better. It, it, this was better actually handled. It was because imagine if they would have given us all those the Jana moments, then the French fries, then the planet. And then they gave us dis- the discussion with Picard and Soji. It would have been a head tilt moment like, oh, OK. I see what you did there. You're setting us up for this. Yeah. And you don't have, you don't have characters as much as I love the, as I said in the last episode, as much as I love the moments of Riker and Jonathan Frank's performance, I'm sorry. I know that hell tilt of a certain Lieutenant and I'm like going, yeah, that's cringeworthy. Well, it just felt more organic. It felt more organic. It wasn't purposely laid out in a very overly strategic way. Where you're like, oh, I see you're dropping the breadcrumbs. I can follow this because the breadcrumbs aren't really breadcrumbs. They're slices of fucking bread. Yes. You're just dropping. This is the proper way of doing things like that. You're letting the characters speak for themselves. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out and seeing just how connected Soji and Daj and this species of of AI are actually connected to data because I'm I'm assuming after this episode it runs a lot deeper than we had originally thought it had. I'm I'm thinking so too because like that's the one element in this whole series up to this point that they've kind of tiptoed around is at the very beginning of this series me and you talked about how are they going to handle data's legacy. What's his legacy? They got to take care of Data's legacy. Now we're seeing it in this episode. While it was cringeworthy in the last episode with Data's legacy, this one is actually treating Data's legacy better. Well, yeah. And now we have the big question, like, who are these synthetics? And how did Data Data get to that? get to them right and i know you mentioned you disagreed with me a few episodes ago when i said well maybe data had some direct hand in creating you're like well i don't know because the timeline doesn't really doesn't really uh sync up yeah it doesn't really match up but now we know that there has been synthetics a lot around a lot longer than soji and dodge have been around and also the fact that they they've slowly alluded that um who uh Jana and Flower, the brother and the other sister were around what six years, seven years six, before seven years. Yeah. Soji and Dodge were even activated. And we know that uh, Maddox and Data have been working on stuff behind the scenes. Right. So who are these synthetics and did Bruce Maddox create them all on his own? I mean, that's the question. I'm I'm assuming that we're going to be getting the answer to very soon here. And and we now know that they've been around much longer than Soji and Dodge had been. Well, at least as far as we know anyway. But I have a feeling, as we had said, there are more involved in their creation. There are more individuals involved in their creation. The mystery behind their true origins has got to be a thing, right? I mean, we haven't answered all questions yet. No, but uh, at least in this episode, we're getting a full-fledged kind of like view of everything. Nothing's being hidden right now. Right. I mean, even with the even with the connection with the Tal Shiar, I thought that was brilliantly done. That basically kind of showing that the Tal Shiar have been have been quote unquote assassinating these these droids throughout history. I thought that was actually well, not throughout history, but or throughout th- throughout the last uh, couple of years. I think they've alluded to it. Well, I okay. Well, well, the Tal Shiar or the Zotvash or Zotvash has, has been. They have been intent on killing all AIs, but I don't know if they've been hunting down these specific sense. Yeah, because this is relatively new. I'm assuming within the last, I don't know what, maybe possibly 15 years, perhaps. Probably probably 10 to 15. Yeah, and we'll find out because I think that's a part of the bigger mystery behind these 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 artificial life forms, these synthetics. 
Are their origins connected to Dr. Soong? That's and I was actually really happy that they brought up that name in this episode when Soji brings up the name Dr. Soon. I'm like going, thank you. Yeah. You got to bring him up if you're going to be talking about synths. Well, dude, and they got to be careful and I'll tell you why, because, well, first off, let's before I get to that, I don't want to I don't want to skip over things. But I mean, are we going to find that that possibly Dr. Soon used parts of this? Alien species that got annihilated were there parts of their tech used to create data lore and before is that how he was able to make such unique robots and where are all the AI that killed the species that created the admonition we don't know that we don't know that so are they on this planet are they a part of Dr. Soong's legacy in some way? Yes, they're ancient. So did Dr. Soong unite with them? We already know the story of Dr. Soong. If you watched Enterprise, you know his story and yes. how he kind of is drawn to the black sheeps of society. And he's obsessed with bettering. He's not an evil man, but he's definitely a science, a mad scientist of sorts. And he's willing to take unethical risks at time. We know yes. that about him. Um, but his story arc was one of the best story arcs in Enterprise. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in Enterprise and in TNG, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the episodes were they dealt with Dr. Soong was actually really cool because like he's he's Dr. Frankenstein if Dr. Frankenstein had a moral compass. Yeah. Absolutely. And like my favorite moment for Dr. Soong when it came to data is Soon explaining to Data why he chose Data over Lore. That's so sad. And everything because Data was the perfect one in his dude, eyes. Talk about a creation story, dude. Look at that, uh, an allegory for God and, and Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was such a dude, good story. Fuck, dude, every time. Oh, my God. Dude, it made, it, th those old Star Trek shows are so good, dude. It made, it made a villain. So sympathetic because at that point, dude, Lore, knew Lore was, was evil. Lore, dude, Lore was my jam back in the day. He was my favorite character when I was a kid. His sarcasm, his like evil grins. I'm like, dude, this guy is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I loved him. So, dude, I'm hoping they circle right on back and connect Dr. Soong to uh, the ancient synthetics in some way. It, it would feel appropriate if everything is connected, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. If the AIs were connected to Data, to Dr. Soon, to the synthetics that we're dealing with now, it would feel more cohesive and talk about what a way to connect your Star Trek series in a real big way. So oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to this. And Do you realize the deeper, the deeper story for all us Star Trek fans that I think a lot of people aren't really noticing is that Soon's throughout the entire Star Trek, whether it's TNG, you get to Enterprise, Dr. Soong goal, his angle is to, is to create the perfect being, right? That's right. why in Enterprise we have the eugenics war and Dr. Soong was actually connected to uh, the con, uh, yeah. cons people yeah, because they were, he, or he a helped, group of them. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was the one that tried to lead the, benefits of uh bettering genetics and then since that failed soon jumped to uh to the tech side because of that right why because he's trying to chase the perfect race yeah and what is it what in this series are we saying is like there is a perfect race of cybernetic people and there's a hubris that comes with that i mean that's in fact they said that isn't that what agnes said in this episode that there's a hubris to to this this need to to create the the perfect life the, the perfect life i mean dude this this has got to be connected and that's why i was like going god please let this let them connect it to soon's lady's legacy as well as data's yeah because soon's legacy is all about that chasing the perfect being yeah yeah for sure and all of this feels very much like battlestar galactica Race of beings creates artificial life, artificial life evolves and then destroys human life and civilization. And to be fair, I'm not saying they're ripping them off. There are similarities. 
it, to be fair, it's the backdrop for a lot of dystopian science fiction. Oh, absolutely. And this is where Shabon's introspective talents really comes into play and what makes me appreciate his work, because this is the type of writing I'm used to, like his novels that he's written. A lot of it is like this type of stuff. Very introspective thoughts into sociopolitical uh, uh, cultures and, and how f- cultures form. And Star Trek, for the most part, has been more of a utopian science fiction. Yeah. But what we're getting here is. is slightly dystopian. And I actually really dig the parallels of or the contrast, I should say, between the two using one as a warning for another. So what you got here is a utopian existence. But if you don't change the era of your ways, you will be your own destruction. And at the end of that is a dystopian future. future. So the fact that they're playing with with uh, notes of dystopian science fiction and they're meshing it into the utopian backdrop of Star Trek and showing the parallels by saying, Hey, look, this is what you guys have always been utopian, perfect life for all people. Right. But you know, you've made some decisions along the way. I mean, Picard even said as much in this episode, the Federation has made some decisions. And if you don't change course, your utopian society is going to become a dystopian society. Dystopian society. And that's something Star Trek has never dealt with. And these are the things that make Star Trek great. And that's why I like this episode. Because you're challenging a thought. There may be some Star Trek fans, some purists out there, who are getting, who are getting angry with some of these themes. And some of these backdrops. Oh, dystopian? Star Trek's not dystopian. It's utopian. Well, well I think for right now, it still is. Yeah, for right now, it is. But I mean, the point is, hey, look, but if you keep going down this path, Starfleet, your, your destruction is going to be over here. Is over it's going to be dystopian. So the fact that they're playing with that, it, I mean, that's, it's brilliant. And people, people have to understand, Star Trek really hits the right notes when they start questioning Roddenberry's utopia. Yeah, don't derail that's what Roddenberry it, but question would want. it. That's what Roddenberry would want. Question it. You yeah. have to question how did we get here? If it was worth getting here. <laughs> it, everything that we've done up to this point, was it worth the steps that we had to take? Uh, yes, Dave. And, you know, everybody claims to be a, a Gene Roddenberry um, expert on what he wants, but... I mean, look at the original series and how many episodes ended with a question and a philosophical thought. That's part of the episode sometimes. Yeah. He may not have done it as because TV writing was a little more simple at that time. He may not have as he may not have done it as complicated or in intrinsic as uh, or intricate as maybe more modern television, like say Picard and even Discovery. But it's still the same ideas. It's still the same thought. It's just done a little differently. Yes. You can't have the captain sit on the bridge and and ask questions to his medical officer and and his first officer on every single Star Trek show. No. You have to embed it within, to, within the narrative. And that's what they're doing here. Although if they did that with Rios, dude, that'd be kind of funny. With all the holograms? With all the holograms. <laughs> that'd <laughs> yeah. be awesome. Yeah. All right, so we get the bigger picture of this entire conspiracy that the first season of Picard seems to be built on. Basically, what the Zot Vash is all about. So I'm going to read this directly from the wiki because I can't say it better. The Zot Vash were formed hundreds of years before the 24th century when a group of Romulans investigating the mystery of the Eightfold Stars discovered the admonition on the planet Aya. After experiencing the memories of the utter devastation wrought by the synthetic destroyer called Seb Chednib, contained within the admonition, they dedicated themselves to eliminating synthetics so as to prevent another such event. Subsequent generations of Zot Vash would also submit themselves to the admonition so as to strengthen themselves for their task. I really like that quite a bit. It is. It is really cool. It's a cool explanation of like, number one, it's furthering, you know, 
diving into the Romulan culture, culture, I mean, uh, really deeply in really, really deeply. I mean, in. this is almost like the origins of their car- culture. When you're talking about what th- hundreds of years, hundreds of years before the 24th century. We're going deep into their culture, the, the very fabric of what they become and maybe the, the paranoid isolationist that they are is all built on this belief, this admonition, this message, this warning. Isn't that awesome? That for me, I really the, the Romulans we have been in Dave ever th- think about this ever since the 60s in the original series. We never see the Romulans. They're in hiding. They're isolationists. They're afraid. Right? Yes. Okay. Suddenly we get the reasons behind why the culture is the way it is. That's awesome. That a show a show can go back and explain a race or species. A species. Within Star Trek that we have watched since what? 50 plus years. And taking and also taking that species, which we all up to this point as Star Trek fans view them as the one of the ultimate enemies. Right. Yeah. But you put you portray them as a species that was based around fear. They were afraid. Well, it makes them less villain, less villainous. It makes them dangerous still, but it makes them less villainous. You're putting uh, a human face, essentially. Mm-hmm. For a lack of better words, you're putting a human face over the enemies. And this is something, and that's why I'm saying, David, this this episode explains a few things and fixes a few issues we had. Even your problem that you, I believe you voiced it last week. Who's the villain? Yeah. Who's the villain? Who's and, the villain? And what do we always talk about in Star Trek? Uh, the biggest problems with the, because I love the J.J. Abrams movies for the most part. I enjoy them. Into Darkness was rough, but the other uh, two were, were pretty good movies, but what's the biggest problem in these films? The villains. You look at the original Trex films. It, it, the villains were good. You, your heroes are only as good as your villains sometimes. And they are creating a very complicated villain in Picard. And that's something that Discovery hasn't really been able to even do. I mean, their villain was an AI. You can't. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, cool story, but eh, your villain's kind of weak. And it, it was shallow. Right. The villain was very, very shallow. Picard, you're making the villain very grounded and something that we can all understand. We can all understand fear. Yes. And I thought that that was the brilliant thing was actually... Making the making them a culture that's driven by fear makes them a little bit sympathetic, but also very dangerous because like, oh, yeah, nothing's more dangerous than a what, what there's a saying that they say that a hot woman like Narisa who's afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's a saying that basically the most scariest thing is is a is a animal backed into a corner. Right. Right. Why? Because it's scared. So like. Essentially, this villain that we've all known this whole time, suddenly we realize they're just afraid of us. Yeah. And and it does make them more interesting. And And, it's interesting. And also, I don't, I I mean, to be serious here, I don't completely hate Nerissa anymore. Especially because we had that moment where she's talking to her her aunt, it was, right? She's talking to her aunt. And you realize that, okay, there's something there, that she's not just an evil person. She's fighting for a cause. There's a reason why. She feels that she is saving. Doing the right thing. She's saving the universe. She's saving the people she loves, and she's doing the right thing. Yeah. And now suddenly, I'm like, okay, I, it's going to be that worse now, or that, that bad. It's going to be even worse now when she gets defeated. You know, or she sees the error in her ways, which is really what I want to say. I want them to know they made the biggest mistake of their life. I don't think that's how you defeat a villain. When the villain realizes his entire goal, his entire life was wrong. But I think that that would ruin the whole point of strengthening the, the, the Romulan culture by showing them that they were essentially. Dude, destroy the culture, man. I think now that we have been, um, now that we're privy to how this culture formed, 
I would have no problem with them falling apart and falling restructuring. Apart. Look, look at the Vulcans in Enterprise when they found out how shady and sinister they were. We saw their entire culture fall apart and then they had to rebuild. They were holding back the humans. They had so many secrets. They, they weren't, they were horrible. They were waging secret wars with the Andorians. They, and then you realize like, oh, wow, they were not on. I mean, they were prejudiced against people that used mind melds. Do you remember? Yes. So it, I'm not saying I want them to completely start over with the Romulans, but it would be kind of it would be interesting to see how they react knowing. And maybe they double down, even though they know maybe they don't give a care. They don't give a shit. But it, it, it'll be interesting regardless. It'll be interesting regardless. But I think that I wouldn't want them to change Narissa, even though because the way I view Narissa now is kind of like how I view someone who's a bigot. She's a zealot. She's a zealot. Yeah. And uh, no, uh, I, I, I feel you. Uh, and a bigot where it's kind of like you can't change their mind because of they, they believe it so hard. And they believe that they're they're doing the right thing or they're what they what they believe is right and yeah. they're never gonna change. You you got a point, Dave. It's like I a part of me says I don't want them to change that character because it just seems too well too I, soapboxy. Yeah, and Dave, you're not wrong. I don't think she is gonna change because when you have a character that's so I don't want to say stubborn, but so mentally strong. Look how she was able to not even budge when she saw the images that the admonition sent to them. Everyone else is beating their heads with skulls or with stones and, and killing and themselves. Killing themselves with, and, oh my God, dude, that scene. But where they, she just, just, she doesn't even, she just stands there. So when you have someone that mentally strong, there's a sense of stubbornness there as well. Yeah, and you're probably right. She's probably not not going to believe anything she sees. Yeah. So overall, everything we learned about the admonition and what we learned in this episode, really interesting stuff. It's interesting and it does in fact explain as I was leading us to, it does explain a few things that we had issues with, Agnes and the killing of Maddox. You know, we had said there's no way she's coming back from this. That she's just a she's bad. Uh, we had justified the act based on Trek canon and how we know how intense Vulcan mind melds can be, right? So we're like, okay, all right. We justified it and said, eh, we still don't completely buy into the fact that, hey, I'm going to murder my lover because of a mind meld. But now that we know how intense that vision is yes. and we see what it does to people, and then you double that with a mind meld. It actually says something about Agnes. How has she been able to, to keep, keep it, it together? together. <laughs> and so it, I actually have some newfound respect for her character. And it explains why she tried to kill herself. Right. At the, la at the last episode. Yeah. Because I was like thinking, oh, she's going to try to set up disharmony among the crew, blah, 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 blah. No, no. She was, she was literally trying to kill herself because the images that she saw from the free from that mind meld were so traumatizing that you just can't you can't uh you can't unsee it i would i would like to know what the hell they saw like something that traumatic i mean yeah they are it's i mean <laughs> i mean okay think about this it's the it's is so catastrophic and horrific. I mean, first off, Agnes, a woman of science, asked Picard if he believes in hell because that's what it was. What the hell happened? Yeah. Are we going to see this, you think, eventually? Are we going to know how or what they saw? Personally, I, I, do, you, I, do you think it's about? I don't think you could quantify it. That's it, the problem. That perfect way of saying it. That's exactly what I was about to say. You can't quantify it because, like, it's better if we don't see it. Yeah, right? It's better. It's better if we don't see it and we just see how it affects other people. And if it's that strong, that kind of gives the audience and we, as the 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 readers of a story or something, there is 
there is a really good use of mystery by doing that. Yeah, no, We're, I agree because our imagination. Our imagination is, is the worst thing. Y- yep. That's right? exa- yep. Our imagination is far worse than images. So if we can imagine, I, I feel like it would actually do a disservice by seeing what they saw. Yeah. It, 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 because right now the imagination is working as wonders and, because and, I'm thinking, you know, just awful things. Yeah. And, and that's the thing I was, I was doing the same thing. I'm trying to think what is the one thing that would drive you, drive them that crazy? Yeah. I can understand seeing like an entire world being destroyed and just the utter devastation of that. Okay. That could be really traumatizing, but not like that. Not, but not like that. It's almost like they're going mad. Like it's almost like, you know how, when they say there's too much information, almost like I'm going to use a horrible example. There's other examples out there, but this is the only one I could think of right now. Like an Indiana Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know I was going to say that? Yes. It's it's like when they, when they looked at the crystal skull and they gained all knowledge and they just couldn't comprehend it, that it was horrific. And it, and it blew up their, it, it melted their brain basically. Right. So I, I, that's how I imagine it. It's just something they just cannot comprehend. Or, or, you know, what's the one thing that popped in my head just now that basically, I guess you could kind of tie it like that is like in star Wars, Obi-Wan. We don't talk about star Wars on this show, David. How many times (laughs) do I have to tell you? I'm sorry. I like cross platforming, (laughs) but, but basically the whole saying, I felt an entire people cry out and just get extinguished in one go. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. I can see that driving a person mad. (laughs) Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that all happens and, and what exactly that this means for everyone else and, and the show as a whole. I mean, they mentioned the fact that there was that threshold of synthetic evolution or life it's a, div- a dividing line when something bad happens. And they equated it to kind of like in a less horrific way to Zephyr and Cochran. And once he achieved warp speed, what oh, happened? Dude, that was cool. It was a dividing line. It was a, dividing it was a line. time when it would attract attention. Like the Vulcans coming down and making first contact. And it's, it's kind of like what, um, in fact, it's not kind of, it is, it's like what, uh, Oh, who's that genius that died? Uh, Stephen Hawking has said about alien life. He's all like, all these people want to contact aliens. They're sending out signals. We want to know what's out there. And he says, you don't want to know what's out there because if there is anything out there and if they catch, if we catch their attention, we're dead. It's no different than the conquistadors coming over to the new world. What did they do? They raped, they pillaged, they murdered, they took what they wanted. It's, yeah. it's, it's how people are. It's, it's the nature of, of people who travel. Like we think that people are going to be coming over here with bald heads that are floating and they're completely enlightened. <laughs> He's all, what we're going to get is a, a, a warrior species out to conquer. Yeah. Or locusts, something like, uh, something uh, like that. Right. So, um, so that was an interesting thought. I like how a lot of the thoughts in Picard are, are a part of modern day philosophy. Yes. That is one of its strengths. Yeah. I I do like that. And we also, as we had said at the top of the show, we now know that this whole thing with the Tal Shiar, the Zot Vash, it is not some supernatural premonition, but a memory. They are not afraid of what will happen, but what could happen based on the experience of the mysterious alien species. And interestingly, this memory is the very thing that broke the Borg cube. That's why, and we're going to circle back just for a bit here. Whatever they saw was so horrible that it created a disruption in the Borg. And it yeah. assimilated, after it assimilated the scout ship Shaynor, on which I believe Ramada was a passenger. I believe that was her name. Ramda. The sheer Ramda. Yeah, Ramda. The sheer force of Ramda's despair caused by her prior contact with the admonition triggered the submatrix collapse on the cube that immediately severed it from the collective. How awesome is that? I mean, what the hell did they see, <laughs> David? I mean, we, even the Borg are I like mean, going, fuck wait, that. Picards are like, wait a second. The, the Borg, the Picards are like, wait a second. The Borg has 
conquered and assimilated millions of species and a bad memory is what destroys them. He's like, can I get a hold of that please on a drive? (laughs) (laughs) I got some revenge. Yeah. Uh, The story of the annihilation of a people so horrible that it causes people to kill themselves and the Borg to shut down. That is intense, man. That, That really, that's how you build a threat. Dude, that's absolutely. how you build a threat. That's why I'm telling you this episode. I, oh man, it, it frustrates me because this episode is very good, but then it frustrates me because you know I know people say, "Oh, be patient for the show before you start complaining." It's but not about being patient. It, but the, it, this goes no. right back to pacing. Yes. a lot of these elements should have been brought in sooner so that uh-huh. it doesn't feel like we were waiting till the end to say, "Oh, okay." Because what you get is, you know, the first seven episodes feeling kind of like you're dragging your feet. Like, I'm sorry, you know, if you started the series, if you started the series with... With this? This. That would be really cool. Yeah. Because, number one, you establish Nerissa much more sooner. Now she feels like a viable villain that we can get or that we can all follow and say, okay, when she gets, when we see her, she's a threat. David, I don't need more excuses to follow her. Okay. (laughs) So stupid. And then like, if you start, that's the thing that I say is like, I love, I like this episode. It has great moments, but it just frustrates you because it frustrates me because we should have gotten these moments sooner. Yeah. I know. Just on a writing scale. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) And Dave, the thing that's great also about this episode is all of these things that we that we learned this week. All of this was sorted through in the episode the fucking proper way through our characters. Yes. We create the plot sequence to unravel in such a way that we get the answers as our characters do. It started with Rafi's investigation because of Rios's, Rios's reaction to Soji and then this combined with Picard and Soji's conversation with Agnes, several key plot points all leading to the myth arc was all brought to light. Yeah. It was all very organic. And on top of that, I loved how everyone, as I had said, was connected by a single element, the Zot Vash conspiracy. There you go. Because the last thing we need in a show called Picard is a bunch of distractions that really don't have anything to do with Picard. Uh-huh. And all of it now goes under one umbrella. It's great. And this is how you should have started started the series. Because that way then everything else falls into place and you don't we don't feel like the series is like bouncing everywhere and not meandering it feels focused feels focused and and yes and that was the issues i've had with many of these episodes in this first season it just didn't feel focused this episode is the first episode of the season that completely feels focused it's isolated it knows exactly what it's trying to say and it's bringing everything together let's go to a very quick break and then when we get back we're going to jump into some seven of nine and then our final thoughts we'll be right back Oh, yes, engage. Double dumbass on you! Everything! The Rain Man Show. The Rain Man Show. I don't even know what website this is. Studyfinds.org reports Generation H, many millennial... Question mark, by the way. Inside of Sheffield, United Kingdom. Has the quintessential handyman become a thing of the past? Question mark. Homeowners used to take pride in repairing and ma- maintaining oh, their home. Why are you reading question marks? Morse code. The uh, Germans have evaded. Full stop. <laughs> well, news, makes, he's doing. He's, he's make into sure, a newsflash. Yeah, to make sure that people understand it was a question. This just in. This yeah. just in. This <laughs> <laughs> just in. Millennials may not be able to change light bulb. Stop. <laughs> My God, Tony, did you hear that? The millennials can't change a goddamn light bulb. I heard the Japanese uh, surrender the other day. That wasn't what he said. Fucking listen. Pearl Harbor has been attacked. Stop. Question mark. Hiroshima is gone. Full stop. Wait, we lost Pearl Harbor and now they lost Hiroshima? That's a fair trade. Question mark. (laughs) Go ahead, Steve. 
homeowners. Welcome to the news chair. <laughs> the Rain Man Show, exclusively on Rain Man Digital. Head over to RainmanDigitalMedia.com for more details or search for it wherever you listen to podcasts. a uh, 63% on the RMD rating score system. Did you nice. give it a percentage? I didn't, Did I? but I'm, I'm with you. I, I I didn't think about it until now, but I'm 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 with you. It's it's in the sixty two percent, sixty percent. I think uh, you don't even have to be Mexican to enjoy it. Yeah, don't even have to be a bean eater to like it. <laughs> you don't have to be a border hopper to like it, right? I am not agreeing or at all. You Just, don't have to swim the rivers to enjoy this comic. Oh, boy. You don't have to have a child locked up in a cage along the border to enjoy this title. <laughs> it's probably wrong that I laugh, huh? You don't have to be a rapist to enjoy this title. Oh, Listen, I'm Mexican. I can crack all yeah, the jokes. Yeah, that's why I'm like, should I be laughing at what well, he's saying? By default, I'm going to give you a street cred, okay? okay I'm Mexican. You know, I'm the first generation born in the United States. And, you know, I'm going to give you, by default, you get street cred. Uh, so as long as you're talking to me, you know, you, you, you're you brown. <laughs> okay? Yeah, right. And as long as you talk to me, you won't be deported. That's, that's exactly. Thank you. We, it, we're helping each other, Mike. It's a symbiotic relationship. It really is. It is. Weird West Radio, exclusively on Rain Man Digital. Head over to RainmanDigitalMedia.com or search for it wherever you listen to podcasts. Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff that will spice up your bedroom is even better. Just go to adamandeve.com and select almost any one item for 50% off, and then we'll load on the free stuff. Just enter this very exclusive code, RAINMAN, at checkout, and you'll get 10 tantalizing free gifts, including a sexy item for him, a special toy for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. And six extra special bonus items that are sure to rev your engine, pique your curiosity, Mm. and even blow you away. Plus, free shipping. Always sent in discreet packaging. Go to adamandeve.com now. Get 50% off plus the 10 free gifts when you enter the exclusive offer code RAINMAN. Again, that's RAINMAN. Because without it, no free stuff. That's RAINMAN at adamandeve.com. All right, welcome back, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. Don't forget, you can always get more Star Trek discussions each and every single month, including a pre-show that we do uh, in combination. It's almost like a companion show. It is a companion show to this broadcast every single episode. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash Rainman Digital and pledge a minimum of 3 to $5 a month, you gain access to all of those additional shows. All right, so let's talk about 7 and 9. Let's. Connected <laughs> to the collective. This Man, whole, that was cool. Yeah, dude, the whole aspect was cool. The visual effects, I mean, that's the good thing about being in 2020. You know, uh, during Star Trek, Star Trek's heyday, yes, the model work, the miniatures were fantastic for its time. But with today's technology, they can give us this cinematic vibe. And to see the Borg cube regenerate from the, oh, from the outside. Dude, that gave me chills, that man. That was awesome. Because we always hear about the regeneration of the cube, but we've never actually seen it like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it started all when... 7-9 connects herself, and then all of a sudden her voice changes to the We are the Borg. We are the Borg. Now, and I'm like, going, oh. Now, the only reason why, Dave, I didn't think 
because okay so a lot of people are assuming that she's the Borg queen right that she's going to be the new Borg queen that they're possibly setting her up for something bigger now and they very well could they very well could be doing that but they addressed her the collective addressed her as an individual yes and they've never done that they don't even do that with the Borg queen yeah they said Annika still has work to do and they let her go. Now that could be her own sheer willpower to not allow them to assimilate her mind, which would be awesome. And I, I, we had already talked about that at the beginning of the show because there was a statement being made about her mind state and how truly strong she is mentally that she's able to resist the urge because she even said she may not want to when he said, uh, will you assimilate them? And she says, I may not want to stop. Is that what she said? Yeah, she may not want to stop. Yeah. So there was temptation there. I mean, again, if you go back to Star Trek Voyager for the first season that she started in a show, one of her biggest problems was being alone. She wanted to go back to being Borg. Part of the collective. She's obsessed with perfection as well, which again, Dave remembering what her story arcs were for several years. I want to say seasons four and five. She was obsessed with Borg perfection in Star Trek Voyager. When you take that into account, suddenly her, her, her involvement, her character being involved in Picard makes a lot of sense. When you're dealing with perfect life, essentially synthetic life, right? Yes. The evolution of greatness. Being afraid of that very perfection because it may mean your annihilation as a air quotes here subspecies subspecies. And then suddenly you introduce the Borg, which is very fitting. It isn't about nostalgia. Not only is it fitting because it's Picard and his connection and what the Borg mean to Picard, but also what the Borg are. Yeah. What, what, what is their, their motivation? What is. is their clear goal? To be the perfect race race to be the perfect species. Borg perfection. In fact, that's the word seven and nine used many times uh-huh. in Star Trek Voyager. So using her and them in an episode that's dealing with that type of stuff makes perfect sense. And I can only assume that this is all going to mean something by the end. Oh, yeah. In a bigger way. Especially when you take into when you take into her introduction episode. Now, when I look back at that episode, I look at it a little differently now. Um, I honestly think that basically the the story of seven and nine is not going to end here in season one. This is something that they are gearing up. I don't think that they would actually make her the quote unquote Borg queen because that would damage a lot of her legacy as a character in Voyager. But I do think that basically that's a story in Voyager that's still ongoing. It never reached a quote unquote conclusion yeah the way the way it concluded in voyager was she wanted to still become part of a collective her collective however changed it wasn't the borg anymore it was the crew of the voyager right it was janeway it was chakotay it was everybody else chakotay who's chakotay (laughs) it was good old chakotay it was it, it was all those characters that became her collective and now, when I look back at, at that episode, I'm like, going, well, wait a minute. None of them are around her now. And that's why. Yeah, there's some questions. That's why. We have to address them, too. We have to address them. But it also explains why she is the way she is right now. Yeah, we have to find out. If you're going to bring 7 and 9 to the show, you can't just pretend Voyager didn't happen. Yeah. And I know Shaban is walking that tightrope when it comes to Star Trek franchises. We're dealing with numerous franchises, more franchises, more franchises than most. Um, or I should say this franchise has, mo- has more movies and more TV series than most other franchises. And he had already said that he's staying away from mentioning the Dominion because he doesn't want to open that Pandora's box and confuse new listener or new viewers of Picard. And make them feel like they are out of the loop because they're not watching everything. So I understand you got to watch that tightrope, but it wouldn't be that difficult to introduce an idea or thought about seven and nine so that the people who are questioning this 
And, you know, it is canon. You do have to address it. You can't just ignore it. I feel like there is a way to do it. It's just not a, It's just not the canon. It's about the character's legacy. I, I, I don't see... And her characterization. Her characterizations. Right. I mean, like, I think there is some validity. There was a... There was a interview I read where Kate, uh, Kate Mulgrew was asked about Janeway and the Star Trek convention about what Janeway would have thought about Seven of Nine at this point. And Kate Mulgrew brought, brings up a good point about characters' legacies. It, it's okay what they're writing right now. However, they have to be careful with what what they do with that with her legacy Wait, because she, they, she commented on what they're doing on Picard. Yes. Really? I actually, I actually read that somewhere and I have it in my notes. And basically the summary is, is kind of like if Janeway knew seven was, was in this bad place, she'd go and help her because remember, unless Janeway's dead, unless Janeway's dead, <laughs> which would be a shocker. But like, Janeway sacrificed everything in the end of Voyager to save Seven of Nine because she didn't want Seven dying. So what did what did Janeway do or Admiral Janeway? She broke the Prime Directive and broke Temporal Directive and went back in time to go get her crew home. Yeah. No, so uh, yeah, so I don't think we're asking too much. I, yeah. Again, we don't need to have a twenty-five minute spiel; just something very brief, and that that possibly they can explore at a later date. Something very brief. Yeah. Maybe they had a fallout. Yeah. Maybe Jacotay cheated on her with like Balana. I don't know. Maybe she left him. Said, "Fuck you." Yeah. Like, why would you ever cheat on her? But she she realized that her lesbian lover was a better lover than oh. than him. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listen, I've heard those stories. It could happen. It could happen. Yeah. Nothing beats a good scissoring, right? <laughs> All right. Well, this does bring us to the end of our discussion. Dave, do you want to give me your final thoughts and your RMD grade? Okay. My RMD grade, this this grade is a little low for how much we've been uh, saying how great this episode You're an was. asshole. <laughs> it is a little low, but not by much. Uh, the Rayman score I gave this one was an 82. That's not low, dude. That's pretty good. And well, it, compared to like how much we've been saying about than the last great episode, moments, yes, far better than the last episode. <laughs> but like, it's still there's still little hiccups here and there that I have with the writing, like the laziness. I'm sorry. When I when something happens and I basically stop and go, how did she get here? Simple question, right? You tell you don't answer. Or, okay, you bring up that. There's, there's, we see a certain character, Nerissa, or, uh, yeah, it's Nora, uh, it's the villain, teleport away, right? Why, why did she just teleport right into the same area of the Borg cube? Yeah. They're, they're, cut, they're <laughs> cutting things. And, okay, so I know I agree with you because, and that's why I'm saying, is it writing or is it editing and directing? Is there something going on? Because you have her teleport out last week, right? Yes. And we don't even know where she went. Then mm -hmm. we see her in this episode. You're like, okay. And she looked like she was upset that she was teleported out because she was she was in the middle of shooting. So who teleported her out? Exactly. And I know people may say we're nitpicking, but those are moments that you're just like, wait, they just, it throws it takes you, you off and it distracts you. And if it distracts you from the story and you're left questioning why... And where she's at, that's a problem because uh, there's a moment even in this episode where she's being attacked by Borg. We see the vague. We momentarily see the transporter beam and then we see a bunch of ships fly away. It, are we supposed to assume she's on those ships? She's on the ship? Maybe. Uh, I, yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll save mine for when you're done. Anything yeah. else? But that's about it. I mean, I, there, there are some hiccups, but this is a much better episode than the last one. Okay. I'm going to give this episode an 86. Felt like it was a really strong episode. It might be the best story in terms of, of episode. In terms of standalone episode, the story itself, I thought was great. The concept for everything was fantastic. Um, I do have some issues with, with some of the same, same things actually, Dave, uh, that you do. 
I think they take too many liberties with things. And I don't understand why, because you're dealing with a show that's on CBS All Access. There is no running time issues. You have no commercials you have to worry about. There's no there's no show that you're going to interrupt if you run a little too late. And it feels like they're cutting things. For example, how did everyone find out that Commodore O was half Romulan and half Vulcan? Did I miss that, something? That, that was another thing. That I did I miss something? Did they go in the computer system and find out or no, that wouldn't make sense. Cause why would, sense. why would it be in the computer system? Because they wouldn't have a half Romulan, half Vulcan working as the security commander, commander of Starfleet. Of Starfleet. So we find out we never once hear from her or anyone else that she is half Vulcan, half Romulan until they're sitting at the table, Rafi, Picard, Rios and Agnes and Soji. And they're talking about everything and they're putting everything together. How, how they find out that she was half Romulan. That, that's, that's an error. That's an error. And then of course you have the transporter problem. You know, from last week, and we saw that again, which again, I can I can let that go. Yeah, it's death by a thousand cuts when it comes to writing. One small little error yeah. leads to other errors. Uh, listeners out there, correct us if we're wrong. If you have a reason why these things happened and we just drop the ball and we're not paying attention for whatever reason, please tweet us at from the holodeck. On Twitter, or you can send us a message on Facebook, Facebook.com, Star Trek, Facebook.com slash Star Trek from the holodeck. Let us know. We want to hear from you. So overall episode was great. It just, again, had some of those little issues that it seems like every episode of Picard has. And it's issues we've never really seen in any Star Trek series ever. So it's, it's peculiar. It's peculiar. And I, I honestly feel it is the writing. Well, yeah, I know you said or maybe uh, editing. It could be the editing, but who, who whoever's in the editing bay, it needs to be fired. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We need to wrap this show up before it goes down the drain and negativity. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.